Well, it was early August of 1998 uh, when two men, one by the name of John York and the other by the name of Ken Killip, uh, set out on a backpacking trip that they'd been waiting for and anticipating. They'd planned this, put this together. And they were both uh, experienced outdoorsmen and experienced backpackers. Uh, So they were used to being out in the woods, used to being out in the wilderness. Uh, So they were excited about this trip. Their plan was to hike in Rocky Mountain National Park, where they would climb uh, Mount Ida, which is a a peak of a little over 12,000 feet. Uh, After climbing that peak, they were going to descend into a valley where they would camp by uh, Rock Lake uh, for several days. It's only about a six-mile hike, but uh, if you've hiked up over, you know, seven, 8,000 feet, you know how suddenly your lungs feel like they don't want to work. It's a lot of work to hike at elevation. So they start off on this trip, and it quickly becomes apparent that John is in better shape than his friend Ken. And so John is just, he's motoring down the trail, and Ken is, I mean, he's sucking air, right? He's just struggling with the pack. And so John would, would get ahead of him, and he'd wait for Ken to catch up, and then he'd get ahead of him and wait for Ken to catch up. And, and finally, John thinks to himself, you know, I, I described to Ken where we're going. John had been there before. So we told him about Rock Lake. He told him what the trail would look like. And, and he thinks to himself, Ken is experienced, he's used to this, I'm going to go on without him. Now, it, most survival experts would tell you that the wisest thing to do is to travel at the rate of the slowest person in your group. It's safer this way, right? Uh, John doesn't do this, so he continues on, and Ken is coming behind him at a slow, steady pace. Well, as they're hiking, a, a strong storm blows in, wind and rain, and in the middle of this storm and navigating terrain that's unfamiliar for him, Ken gets lost. He wanders off the trail, but he's thinking about his friend John, and he's thinking, surely John's not going to leave me. I'm sure he's just waiting for me up around the next bend. And he knows that John described to him where they were going, so he keeps looking for this mental image of Rock Lake where he can roll out his sleeping bag and just take a a rest. The problem is, is that Ken never stopped to check his topographical map. He was relying on John, and he was relying on his memory of John's description of Rock Lake to find where he was going. So Ken doesn't think anything of it when he starts to climb a slope. He assumes that it's Mount Ida. He gets to the top, and he looks down in the valley where Rock Lake should be, and lo and behold, Rock Lake is nowhere to be found. He's on the completely and entirely wrong mountain. But he justifies in his mind, maybe it's been a dry year, maybe the lake has shrunk, and he begins to play these mental gymnastics as he tries to to find where he's going. He doesn't want to admit where he's lost. And over the next several days, Ken would make a series of irrational decisions that don't make sense. He got hopelessly lost, but for two days he didn't build a fire, so he stayed wet and cold and dark. For two days he didn't set up shelter. And survival experts and psychologists who analyze these kinds of scenarios have suggested that there's five stages to getting lost. What they've said is in the first stage, a person will deny that they're lost and they just press on with urgency. So Ken does this. He's, I'm not really lost. I'm sure it's just around this bend. John will be waiting for me. Gets around that bend. I'm sure John's around the next bend. Denies that he's lost. The second stage is that when someone finally realizes they're lost, that sense of deny and press on, that urgency, now turns to emergency, which quickly turns to stage three, where they expend a lot of emotional energy trying to find a strategy. Stage four of of being lost happens when a person begins to deteriorate mentally and emotionally when they realize that they're hopelessly lost. This is a state of panic. And this is where Ken spent almost two days 
He eventually fell down a a steep rock cliff, severely injuring both knees. So now he's got twisted ankles, he's got twisted knees, and he's literally hobbling through the forest because he wouldn't admit he was lost. Finally, stage five is where survival experts said things will start to shift. And stage five involves a person finally resigning themselves to the situation and going, okay, I'm lost. I'll admit it, I'm lost. And I have to settle in and I have to think rationally. And they said, here a person will calm themselves down and begin to make rational decisions. And so Ken does this. He settles in with his injuries and he begins to to make a, a shelter out of trash bags he had in his pack. And he builds a fire and he stays put for about a day and a half. And lo and behold, a search and rescue helicopter flying over spots his blue parka hung in a tree. And he's shortly after that rescued, but not after losing 15 pounds in a week. And some of you, if your New Year's resolution is to lose weight, you're thinking, I just need to get lost in the wilderness. Don't recommend that. Uh, It's not the best way to do it. But here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. I think Ken's experience of being lost in the Rocky Mountain National Park, I think for some of us, it parallels our life journey. And, And here's what I mean. Ken had some misplaced hope and trust in the things that would help him find where he was going. He trusted his friend John, who let him down because he went on without him. He trusted his own ability to navigate unfamiliar terrain, assuming that it was going to be no big deal to find Rock Lake. But not one time did he actually check his map to see where he was going. He assumed that he could do it. And what I want to suggest to us is is for some of us in our life's journey, we have places of, of misplaced hope and misplaced trust. We have a God who's called us to do life with him and a God who's given us some truth and wisdom and ways to navigate the world around us. But for some of us, we have rejected relationship with God and we've said, I can do this life on my own. For some of us, what we've said is, I am competent enough, I am capable of enough, and, and it's sort of the American way. We work hard, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we find safety and security and identity in things like what we do for a job and what we have for possessions and our reputation. And so we've put all this hope and trust in things like career success and financial stability and, and relationships, and we have trusted those things to bring us safety, security, and definition in life. I think what happens for many of us is we get to this point where, uh, say, identity and and what we do in our job and the title that we hold, maybe you lose a job or maybe you retire and suddenly your sense of identity begins to unravel and come apart. And for many of us, we experience this moment in life where the things that we had hoped in and trusted in, when those things begin to come apart, we feel disoriented. And I think what happens is that for many of us, like Ken, rather than stopping and saying, okay, I'm disoriented. This place and this thing that I had hoped and trusted in is falling through. I I need to reorient. For many of us, rather than doing that, we deny that anything's broken. We say, I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm going to push on. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that there is a way of living and being in relationship with God that brings new definition and new trust and new hope to the way that we live and engage life. And so over the course of the next 12 weeks, we're going to start walking through the minor prophets And the minor prophets, they teach us about what it is to walk in the way and the wisdom of God, assured by his love and compassion for us. So I want to encourage you, if you you haven't picked up one of these books, uh, stop by the, uh, the info desk and grab one of these. This is a guided journaling experience where you can read uh, the the text with us every week. So there's a reading plan that this week will lead you through the book of Hosea. And there's some place to just journal about what you're reading and experiencing and what God is teaching us. 
And my hope and Pastor Steve's hope for us is that in the next 12 weeks, we will come to appreciate the words and the wisdom of God that, that provide for us a roadmap to navigating life and finding hope and contentment and stability in him and in him alone. So this morning, as we embark on this journey, we're going to begin with the book of Hosea. And the book of Hosea is uh, about the prophet Hosea, and he's writing to the nation of Israel. And he's writing to Israel at the time in their history where they've just experienced what we might call a golden age. Uh, This is the 8th century BC, and Jeroboam II is the king of Israel at this point. And if you know anything about Jeroboam II's reign, it's that he was by and large a successful leader. He led military conquest after military conquest, and Israel uh, conquered much of the land that they had under their heyday under King David. So Israel's feeling pretty good. They've got this financial success. They've got military success. And Jeroboam has led them into a season of of stability and reasonably a sense of peace. Now, the problem is, is that God is evaluating Israel's well-being, not on their financial and military strength. God is looking at Israel and, and God begins to say, listen, Israel, you might have been experiencing financial success, but Israel, you've begun to stray from me. And during uh, Hosea's ministry as a prophet, Jeroboam, uh, his, his kingdom succeeds to the next king, and, and over time, things begin to unravel. And there's two core problems that begin to emerge in the life of Israel at this time. The first core issue, and both of these revolve around misplaced trust. The first core issue is that Israel had been trusting foreign military powers to provide safety and security. Now, I say this is a problem because God had, had told Israel, I want you to do life with me. God had called them into a covenant relationship, and God had told them, listen, Israel, I will be your God, and I want you to be my people. And God had told them, Israel, listen, I will take care of you. And what Israel does is they go, nah, we got this. They go, we're going we're to talk to Egypt, and we're going to see if we can make an alliance, and then we're going to talk to Assyria, and we're going to see if the Assyrians can help us, because they're kind of this impending force that if they decide to conquer us, they're probably going to do it. So let's just make these alliances. God, we got this. Now, the other problem, and I think this is the more serious one that Hosea begins to speak to, is that the people of Israel have begun to reject God and have begun to look towards this false god named Baal. And the reason that they begin to look towards Baal is that the nations around them in the land of Canaan where they're living, all of these nations worship Baal. And the idea behind Baal worship was that he was the god of fertility. So you would worship Baal, and it was thought by the Canaanites that it was Baal who made their farmland rich and fertile. It was Baal who allowed their flocks and herds to reproduce. Now, the problem with the, in, in the Canaanite religion was that, that Baal had this opposing force named Mot, this other false god. And in the Canaanite religion, Mot was the god of death. And every summer, the god Mot would display his power in the summer drought where crops and livestock would die. So what the Canaanites believed was that you needed to go up to the temple of Baal, and what you would do is you would engage in ritualistic sex with either a male or female prostitute, and the thought was this ritual act of worship would bring Baal's power forth, and he would make the ground and make the the, the herds fertile, and the people would find economic stability. But you can imagine the kind of dysfunction and the kind of brokenness that this uh, worship of Baal began to introduce into the people of Israel. 
And what they're saying is, God, we don't trust you to provide for us. Really, what we think is going to bring safety and security for us is this false god Baal and these foreign nations. And so the core problem is that the people of Israel find themselves in a place where they have been unfaithful to and no longer acknowledge God. And the core issue is that they've broken their covenant relationship with him. They don't trust God to provide for them. They try to take control in their own hands. Let let me draw this parallel. Here's why I think this matters for us. Probably nobody has an altar to Baal in your basement. If you do talk to me, we we can figure out how to get rid of it. I'm kidding. Probably none of us are making military alliances with foreign nations to find safety and security. But here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. I think for many of us, we try to live life independently of God's plan, purpose, and direction, thinking I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, I'm capable enough, and we place hope and trust in things like uh, the paycheck that we bring home each week, the financial success and stability, and we begin to place our identity in those things, drawing meaning and worth and security and hope from things like the title we have, the power and the influence and the respect we have from people at work or the relationships that we're a part of. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. The problem is we begin to do those things independently of God saying, God, I can take care of myself. Israel has done this in an extreme way and they find themselves in a place where they are walking apart from God, not acknowledging his presence and being unfaithful to him. And this is the environment into which Hosea has to speak. Now, the the question is, when you've got a people who say, you know, God, we've got this. We don't really need your help. We're good enough. We're capable enough. We've got this on lockdown. We're good. How do you begin to get that people's attention to tell them, no, 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 listen, you need God in your life. You can't just do this thing on your own independently of him. This false God Baal that you're trusting, he can't provide for you. How do you begin to get their attention? Hosea could stand up with a bullhorn and and rave and rail against the people of Israel, but this is not what God calls him to do. Instead, what God tells Hosea is he says, listen, Hosea, your life is going to be an example of the people of my grace and of my faithfulness and of my call to bring my people back to me. So in Hosea chapter 1, God begins to unfold his plan to bring Israel back. Hosea chapter 1 verse 2 says this. It says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. So God says, Hosea, here's what we're going to do. I want you to go and marry a promiscuous woman. This is a nice way of saying she was a prostitute. And he says, I want you to go and marry this woman. And Hosea, she's going to be unfaithful to you. And part of what God is trying to help Israel understand is that their rejection of God, their unfaithfulness to him, their their breaking of the covenant relationship is like an adulterous act. And part of what I want us to understand this morning, church, is that when we think about sin as rebellion against God of, of orienting our life away from him, That sin is not just the breaking of a moral code. Sin is not just the breaking of a law. Rejection of God and rebellion against him is a broken relationship. And so God says, listen, Israel, what you've done is you've broken this relationship with me. And so he says, Hosea, I want you to go and marry this prostitute. 
And I want you to love her relentlessly and fiercely. And even after she's unfaithful, Hosea continues to pursue her. I mean, by, by the way, think about how awkward this is, right? Hosea, most scholars think at this point, is, is a young man because he's single. He has another 30 years of ministry that we know of beyond this point. So you can imagine Hosea going home and, hey, mom, dad, just popping over for dinner. You got some big news. I'm getting married. You know, and like loving parents, they're excited for him. Who's the lucky lady? Um, her name's Gomer. She's a prostitute, right? Like you just feel the air come out of the room, right? What? Or imagine, like, we just came through Thanksgiving and Christmas. Imagine being at your extended family Christmas, right? And your beloved grandmother stirring the mashed potatoes in the kitchen. Gomer, honey, it's good to meet you. But what do you do? Do you work outside the home? Like, how does she answer that question, right? How do you break it to dear grandma that you're marrying this woman who's a prostitute? But this is what God calls Hosea to do. He says, I want you to marry this woman who's going to be unfaithful to you. And he says, I want you to love her relentlessly. And this image of Hosea pursuing his wife who's unfaithful, God says, this will become an image of my love for Israel even when they've been unfaithful. And Hosea is this beautiful story of God's pursuit of an unfaithful people. When you look at Hosea chapter 3, there's this moment where Hosea goes after Gomer. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, uh, she's, she's back in the life of a prostitute, and Hosea literally has to buy Gomer back for 15 shekels. He has to buy his own wife back. And, but what's so beautiful about this is, is that Hosea says, listen, Gomer, you have been unfaithful. I will take on myself the cost of your unfaithfulness, and I will buy you back out of slavery. Church, this is exactly what God does for us when we have been unfaithful and have rejected him and have chosen life on our own. Rebellion against God and life apart from him deserves death, but God sends his son to die on the cross and God takes upon himself the burden and the cost of our unfaithfulness. And so I think there's this question, when we have wandered from God, the nation of Israel has been unfaithful, how in the world do they find their way back to God in a place of hopelessness? And here's the truth that I want us to grasp this morning. They don't find their way back to God. It's that God finds them. And I want us to recognize this morning that God pursues us even though we've turned away from him. That there is no place that you can run beyond God's grace or beyond God's love. Because God, even when we are unfaithful, even when we are saying, God, I've got this and I'm going to do life on my own. God is saying, listen, I'm I'm coming after you. And I'm going to show you again my love and my grace, even though you think you don't need it. In Hosea chapter 2, God begins to unfold this plan of redemption. God has a strategy to win his people back. So Hosea chapter 2, verse 5, it says this. It says, their mother has been unfaithful. And he's talking here about Israel. Because they're children of adultery. He says, uh, their mother has gone after other lovers who give their food and water and olive oil and drink. And what he says is Israel has pursued these other nations. She's pursued this false God's thinking. These are the things that can satisfy her and fulfill her. In light of that unfaithfulness, God says, I have a plan to draw you back to me. The rest of Hosea chapter 2, there's three therefore statements. And each therefore statement is another stage in God's plan of redemption for the people of Israel. So walk with this through me. Hosea 2 verse 6. Israel has been unfaithful, verse 6. Therefore, God says, I will block her path with thorn bushes. 
I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I'll go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better than now. But she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Israel has been unfaithful. Verse 6, therefore God says, I will block her path and I will wall her in. And at first we read this and we're like, what, what is he talking about? But what Hosea does here is he, he pulls in an agricultural metaphor. And this idea of, of building a wall and blocking a path is reminiscent of, of the shepherds who in the open field would build a hedge of thorn bushes as a boundary around their flocks for their own safety. This image is of one God, of God one setting up a boundary for his people for their own good. You see, for the people of Israel, their assumption is that only Baal can provide for them. Their assumption is if they want to find peace and tranquility, that they need to find that in Egypt, not in God's ability to provide for them. What they think is that all these other things are more powerful than the God who's promised to take care for them. And God says, listen, I'm going to block your path and not allow you to pursue the things you think you need. So here's what I want to suggest to us. That there are times and places when we are doing life independently of God, that God will shut a door and close down a path and close down an opportunity for our own good. I remember this moment in college. Um, I was really frustrated. Um, there was a relationship that hadn't worked out. And it was this moment of me just being mad at God that I, I didn't have the ability to be in a relationship yet. And I remember talking about it and, and, and praying about it and just kind of being mad at God a little bit and, and saying, okay, God, when, when is it my turn to find someone that I fall in love with that I can be in a relationship with and spend life with? And I remember God clearly, not audibly, but a sense of God's spirit in my heart saying, Aaron, what I withhold from you, I withhold for a purpose and you have to trust that it's for your best interest. Honestly, it didn't take away my anger towards God. I was still frustrated. But I walked away from that moment of prayer saying, can I trust that God has shut down or withheld something from me out of my best interest? And I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's, it's a promotion that you thought was coming. Maybe it was a new house that you hoped you'd be able to finance. Maybe it was this next thing that you were in pursuit of and suddenly that door slammed shut and you're going, God, why did you shut this down? But listen, if there is an opportunity or a path that we are pursuing that will take us farther from God, it is in our best interest and for our good that God would shut that down. And sometimes God will block our path and God will shut a door to bring us back to a place of pursuit of him. And this is exactly what he does for Israel. Part two of God's plan begins in verse nine. Israel has been unfaithful, therefore, verse nine, God says, therefore, I will take away my corn when it ripens and my new wine when it's ready. I will take back my wool and my linen. I will stop all the celebrations and yearly festivals and Sabbaths, all the appointed festivals. I will ruin the vineyards and her fig trees, which she said were paid from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to Baals. She decked herself out with rings and jewelry and went after other lovers, but me she forgot. Now, at first read, this, this feels vindictive, right? God says, okay, I'm going to destroy your corn crop. I'm going to destroy your vineyards, and it's going to become a wilderness area. Wild animals are going to move in. And at first read, you see this, and you can go like, wow, is, is this like God taking revenge? 
But the thing you have to keep in mind is that as God is speaking to the people of Israel, God is always acting on their behalf in grace and in goodness. This is not a vindictive God getting his revenge. This is a moment where God says, you think Baal can provide for you? You think Egypt can provide for you? You think Assyria can bring you safety? This is a moment of God saying, I'm going to withdraw my provision and you will see what Baal can do for you. And this is a moment for the people of Israel understanding the fruitlessness of the things that they have pursued. And I know in my life, there's moments where I've told God, I've got this, I can do this on my own. And God steps back and says, okay, you wanna see what you can do? I'll let you try it. And I can tell you from my experience, every time I've done that, I have fallen flat on my face because I think I know better than he does. And so what happens is that God leads the people of Israel through a season of brokenness where they understand and realize the fruitlessness of all the things that they put their hope and trust in apart from him. Stage three of God's plan is found in verse 14. Israel has been unfaithful, verse five. He says in verse 14, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips and no longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish so that they may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil. They will respond to Jezreel and I will plant her for myself in the land and I will show my love to the one I called not my love. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say you are my God. And what you've just witnessed is an ancient vow renewal. The first two parts of God's plan, he blocks their path and closes doors and opportunities. The second stage of God's plan, he leads them through a place of brokenness where he says, I will show you the powerlessness of Baal as I withdraw my provision and you can see how powerless he is to bring you what you want. Stage three is when Israel is in that wilderness place, that broken place. In verse 14, God says, listen, in that wilderness place, I'm going to allure you here. And church, this is the language of romantic pursuit where God says, in your most broken place, I'm going to woo you back to me. In that wilderness place where their life has been laid bare and they are broken open in a raw and hurting way, God says, I'm going to come alongside of you. And the language that Hosea uses is that God will speak tenderly to his people. And it's this image of in their most broken and dejected place, the God of all the universe takes a seat beside the people of Israel and says, hurts, doesn't it? Let me talk about where your heart's wounded. Tell me about that. And there's this moment where the God of Israel says, you will find when you trust other things, when you put your hope in other things, that will lead you to a place of brokenness. And on the other side of that brokenness, you will find the God of all creation waiting there to speak tenderly to you. 
And we will find that even when we have been unfaithful to him, God has not one time been unfaithful to us. And at the end of this passage, God says, I will betroth you to me and I will betroth myself to you. And God says, I will betroth you in justice and compassion. And this Hebrew word compassion is the word yakamim. It literally means from the womb of God, he has moved towards you. That the God of all the universe says, in your most broken place, I want a relationship with you and I'm coming after you to pursue you in love and graciousness and I want to allure you back to me. And God says, those who were called not my people, who had rejected covenant, no, we're not with God, we're not with him, no, we're doing this on our own. God says, I will call you once again my people. And we will walk through this together. Maybe you're at a point in your life where the things that you had hoped in or trusted in, the things that you would set the weight of your life down in is finding meaning and purpose and significance and identity. Maybe some of those things are coming apart. Maybe it's a relationship that's falling apart. Maybe it's you're retiring from your job and you found so much identity in the title that you hold and the significance that you have and and that's kind of coming apart. Maybe you got fired and let go and and you're wrestling with who am I and what do I do and, and how do I come to terms with this? And you're beginning to realize maybe some ways that you put unhealthy significance in things that are, are, are not of God. And again, it's not that those things are bad or wrong or evil. The problem is when we expect those things apart from God to bring security and peace and hope and tranquility. We, we put expectations on things that they can never do. If you want to find hope and peace and contentment and joy, that is found only fully in relationship with the God of all creation. And maybe some of you are at a point where you're beginning to feel the lostness of this thing that I have hoped in is showing its fruitful, fruitlessness. What do I do now? And how do we begin to respond in the middle of this season? It's not doing what Ken did, pretending we're not lost and pushing on, getting even more and more lost. The sooner that we can become resigned to our situation and say this thing that I thought would provide for me and make me happy and make me fulfilled is not doing that. The sooner we can stop and open our lives to God's presence, the sooner we encounter the God who speaks tenderly to us in the midst of our brokenness. Hosea 14 gives us a way of responding to this call of Hosea. Chapter 14 says this, verse 1. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in, your fa- for in you the fatherless find compassion. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the corn, and they will blossom like the vine. And Israel's fame will be the wine of Lebanon." Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. I don't know about you, but one of the things I've noticed in my life 
I'm just prideful and arrogant enough that sometimes God has to lead me through a season of brokenness before I can develop an openness to his word, his way, and his wisdom. And now that God has led Israel through the season of brokenness, he says in chapter 14, here's how you can respond in this moment where you realize you're lost and you've done life independently of God. He says, 14 verse 1, return. But this word return is really this idea that we get the word repentance from. The Hebrew word is teshuva, and it literally means to turn or to return. We always think of repentance as, I'm sorry for what I've done, I repent. Repentance is not just, I'm sorry. Repentance is a change of trajectory where we return and we begin to come home and we begin to open up our life to God. So Hosea says, return Israel, come back to him, begin to open up your life to him. And this idea of repentance is coupled with this idea of confession. Notice what it says in verse 3. Israel begins to confess what they put hope in. They say, Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We can't fight our way out of this. We will never again say our gods to what our hands have made. In other words, Israel says, okay, we we tried to find security in Assyria. It didn't work. We tried to find security in our military power. It didn't work. We tried to find security and safety in false gods. That didn't work. And they confessed to God. Here's where we put our hope and our trust and our safety and security, and it didn't work. And church, I think if we're going to respond in these moments, it's an opportunity to come before God, to turn our life back to him and say, God, I confess that I tried to find safety and security and hope in what I do and what I have and what other people say about me. And then that repentance and confession, there's this moment then where we're able to receive God's healing. I love verse four. On the other side of repentance and confession, verse four, God says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. It doesn't say, hey, if you repent and confess, if God's in the right mood, he'll forgive, right? And some of us have this image of an angry God who says, you messed up, didn't you, kid? Right? How many of when that comes to mind? And we think, okay, I'm going to repent and confess, and God is going to rub my nose in it to show me what I did wrong. But that's not what the text says. What it says is when you repent and confess and return, God says, I will heal you. And he says, I will love you freely. This isn't something we do or earn. This is something God freely offers and gives when we open up our lives to him again. The other way I want us to respond this morning is just just to consider. Consider your life. Notice what Hosea calls this to at the end of this passage. He says, who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. In other words, Hosea says, consider your life. Think about your life. Where have you placed your hope and your trust, and your sense of safety, and security, and stability. Is God a part of that picture? And maybe you've done life independently, and this morning is a moment and an opportunity to turn around in a season maybe of brokenness and say, God, I confess that I've I've tried to find significance in a lot of other places, but I want to experience your grace. And what I love about this is that when we walk with God and our lives begin to flourish, we become a source of God's hope, not just in our own life, but we become a source of God's hope for other people. Notice what it says in verse 5. God says, I will be like dew to Israel, and they will blossom like a lily. This is the language and the imagery of flourishing. And in verse 7, God says, people will again dwell in his shade. And this is a way of saying metaphorically, when people dwell in your shade, it means you become a source of hope and of life and of well-being for others. 
In the ancient Near East, it's a dry, hot, arid place. Shade was life-giving. And God says, when you live life with me, when you walk with me, your life will flourish up and open, and you will become a means of grace and love and hope in the life of another by God's grace. Let me leave you with this this morning. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious will stumble in them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you for a powerful story like the story of Hosea. That he goes and he marries Gomer and she's unfaithful to him, but that does not deter Hosea from pursuing her and, and loving her freely. And God, I love that this is all a metaphor of your love for us, that even when we've been unfaithful and even when we've done life on our own, you don't stop pursuing us. It's not about us finding you again. It's about realizing and recognizing, God, that, that even when we are in rebellion against you, you are pursuing us. And so, God, I pray this morning for those who have, we've done life independently. We've pursued a path far from you. God, I pray this morning that we'd run smack dab into you. And I pray that we would return to you, that we would open up our hearts and our lives to you and experience the hope and the flourishing that you bring. Father, we love you and we thank you for your grace and your love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.